Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Go ahead and bookmark Matthew or Luke 11. And when you pray, this is Jesus' this is Sermon on the Mount. The book of Matthew could be broken up into five discourses, if you will. A lot of scholars say you could break it up into five discourses. This is the first of his five discourses, which is the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7. And in verse 5, when you pray, everybody say when. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. As surely I say to you, they have their reward, and their reward is that they're seen by men. That's their only reward. It's a stench in the nostrils of God. He hates hypocrisy. He wants prayer to be as unto him. I carry on. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father, who is in the secret place, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions or meaningless repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words much like the prophets of Baal in the account of First Kings with Elijah. All day they cried out to their God over and over again, resorting to cutting themselves as the heathen do, thinking that their God will hear them with many repetitious and vain words. Verse 8, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore pray. So pray like this. Here's how I want you to pray. And probably most of us in here could quote this from memory. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Go to... Luke 11, verse 1. And stay in Luke 11 for the remainder of the night. Because this will be our primary text, but it's necessary to also read Matthew 6. Because we'll relate back to it. 11, 1. Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, <coughs> when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, everybody say when. When you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And in the remainder of verses 5 through 13, we'll, we will actually make the verses 5 through 13 the subject matter of next Wednesday's sermon. And so I want to speak to you here today. Uh, the title of the message is The Model of Prayer. The Model of Prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, which is living and powerful. I have no power myself, I have no authority into myself, in myself, but God, your word does, your spirit does, your name does. So we come here in your name, Jesus, and ask 
that you would help us and lead us into all truth and righteousness, make us more like you, show us the importance of prayer, show us the importance of your presence. Let it be that we always pray as you did, as you often withdrew into a private place. Make that our testimony here today. In Jesus' name, amen. On Sunday, if you were here, if you recall, the subject that I preached on was the praying Christ. I discussed, I preached, I taught on the fact of Jesus being a very prayerful individual. He was a praying Christ. The prayer life of Jesus was phenomenal, and I brought out many things regarding that. And the primary text on Sunday was Luke 5.16. And it said, after his fame had gone forth, after he was getting more attention, after all the crowds and people were coming to him, and he was ministering more and more, it said, so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. And we emphasize the nature of Jesus' prayer life with the hope that it would affect our own prayer life. And on next Wednesday, I'm going to continue this theme of prayer. On this coming Sunday, I'm going to begin the series on the Holy Spirit. And more than ever, I have a desire personally and for this church for us to be a people of prayer. We will be absolute failures if we are not people of prayer. Not because we have worked so hard and put in the hours on the clock and we've said, look, God, we've prayed so much. But the nature of prayer is that you are with God and God can put himself in you. As I spoke on April 26, birth, not, not um, brainstormed, how that the life of God, his nature, his will must be birthed in us. And that, that word birth indicates contention and in toil and, and anguish, if you will, when it comes to the birth of a, of a natural child. And if the will of God is going to be birthed through my life, ministry, the will of God, for me to do his good will and his good pleasure, it's going to come through me being captivated by his heart, knowing his mind, knowing his will for my life, being absolutely preoccupied with the will of God. And you cannot do that except that you be with him, except that you're in his presence. And if Jesus, being fully God, but yet fully man, the Son of God, the Son of Man, if he often withdrew and he prayed and went to lonely places, I must do the same. If Jesus was going to bring his task to absolute completion and finish the work of the Father, he had to continually pray. And I brought out many things on Sunday as to why he always prayed and indicates why we must always pray. I want to encourage you. If you're able to be here, be here on Monday night for a prayer meeting. We've had wonderful prayer meetings. It's, it's, it's not um, any kind of structure, if you will, for the first portion, first 45 minutes, we will pray. I may share something, and then we just, if anybody has a need, we'll pray with one another. And just last Monday, not, this, not, not uh, uh, two days ago, but the last Monday, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. The Holy Spirit just, just meeting us there. And the Lord praying through us and, and abiding there with us. That's what we need. That's what we need. It's not a matter of works. That's not what we're talking about. If, if I love my wife, I'm going to want to be with her. There's something wrong if you don't want to be with your spouse. If you don't want to spend time with, with them. And what leads to disconnection from your spouse? Not spending time with them. Not talking to them. And, and it's the same way with Jesus Christ. I want to 
encourage you. Make your prayer life something that it never was before. And many of you already have a wonderful prayer life as it is. So, as we read in Matthew chapter 6, there are two instances where what we, have, we now often refer to as the Lord's Prayer. But it's really not the Lord's Prayer. We're, go- we're going to call it the Disciples' Prayer, or we're going to call it the Model of Prayer. The Model of Prayer. But in Matthew chapter 6, at the, towards the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he taught this prayer. He spoke this prayer while he was on the, the mountain. And many scholars believe that these are two instances in which Jesus spoke this prayer. And that's why there's a difference in the wording of it. It's basically the same, but it's different. But at the beginning of his ministry, he very likely um, gave the prayer in Matthew while in the vicinity of Galilee. And the, the prayer in Luke is most likely in his, his later years of ministry, likely in the area of Judea. But what I want to do here today, what I want to do here today is drawing from Luke and carrying into next week is, is to describe to us what the model of prayer is using what we often call the Lord's Prayer, but we're going to call the Disciples' Prayer, the model of prayer. And there are... There are so many precious jewels to be mined from what Jesus taught on this. And just bear with me here tonight. I don't want to be laborious. I'm going to to try to carry along. But I really want to draw out, verse by verse, this prayer and this model of prayer that Jesus laid out for us. And, And for me personally, I have benefited greatly from studying this. Many hours of study that I put into this for tonight. And I hope that you can benefit from this as well. But in verses 1 through 4, Jesus gives us the model of prayer. What to pray. And in verses um, 11, or actually it's 5 through 13. Yeah, 5 through 13, he tells us how to pray. He talks about persistency and being urgent, asking, seeking, knocking. And we will look at that next week. But he tells us what to pray. In this what to pray, it's this model that we should, how that we should model our own prayer life. So let me begin. Let me begin absolutely with verse 1. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Isn't it wonderful that what most likely prompted this disciple to ask, Lord, teach us to pray, was that he was observing that very moment Jesus praying. He was observing Jesus praying. And all along the way, the disciples were being taught by Jesus continuously for the three years of ministry that they were with him 24-7, basically, observing everything he did, listening to everything that he taught. And I don't know about you, but there are very many aspects of Jesus' ministry I would have liked to have been there to witness. How about you? I would have loved to see Jesus walking on water and see Peter walking on water. I would have loved to meet Peter to walk on water. I would have loved to see Lazarus walk out of that tomb in a mummified state, if you will, as Jesus said, Lazarus come forth. I would have loved to see deliverances of demons. I would have loved to have seen healings of the leprous right before my eyes. I would have loved to have seen 
his expert and authoritative rebuke of the Pharisees and the lawyers. I would have gotten a really big kick out of that. Whitney especially, he's shaking his head. Where men who were very high were brought very low by the wisdom of Christ. I would have loved to have seen his tender ministry to the broken and the outcast, such as the woman caught in adultery, to whom he brought conviction to her accusers. And at the end, he said, go and sin no more. I do not condemn you. I would have loved to have seen Jesus playfully tend to the children who wanted to come to him and sit on his lap and watch him bless them. And I think, I think after looking more so at this very subject of Jesus' prayer life, I think most of all, I would have liked to have seen Jesus pray. I would have loved to have seen the wonderful, deep intimacy he had with the Father. And I imagine that this was so effective upon this disciple and the disciples to the point that they had watched him pray towards the end of his ministry, and he said, Jesus, please teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. John taught his disciples to pray. Can you teach us to pray? I would imagine that the blessedness of Jesus' prayer life placed this desire and caused this disciple to ask the question. Yet the nature of the request indicates there were low conceptions mingled with high desires, as if a form of prayer would be sufficient. And then for them to liken Jesus to John as if they are have parallel ministries, they kind of undercut the, the ministry of Jesus and that teaches the way, same way that John did. And though there was some ignorance in that question, there was a genuine desire to know. Lord, teach us to pray. And so he consents, teach us to pray. And so, we should always understand, as the, pursuant to the title of this message, the model of prayer, that Jesus is not about to give us a script that we verbatim pray to the Father. He is giving us a model of prayer. He's giving us an example of how we should pose our own prayers that come from our own hearts and our own minds. This is what he is providing to us. So it should be noted that he is not asking us to repeat a verbatim script for prayer, but rather use this as a model or pattern for our own praying. And the reason he's not teaching us to verbatim quote this, however, it's okay to quote it, it's okay to dwell upon it, it's okay to meditate upon it, it's okay to read it, it's okay to view it, it's scripture, it's okay to even pray it. Because there's multiple scriptures throughout the Word of God that are beneficial for us to pray. But the reason we can know, about four or five reasons that we can know that he is not providing for us a script, if you will, or something to be repeated verbatim, is that in Matthew, Jesus says, in this manner, therefore pray. In this manner, literally means thus, therefore. And frequently carry the idea of along these lines. Along these lines, or in the following manner. That's what that in indicates. Second, in Matthew 6, Jesus instructed them not to use vain and meaningless repetitious prayer like the heathen. So for us to mindless read this prayer over and over verbatim, as if it's not even coming from our heart, would be likened to the rep repetitive prayers of the heathen. And so Jesus would not contradict himself by saying that. 
Third, notice that the disciples in Luke, they did not say, teach us a prayer. He, they said, teach us to pray. Don't teach us a prayer to pray all the time. Teach us to prayer, to pray. So in response to that, he's giving them a model for prayer, teaching them how to pray, what to pray, the content of their prayers. And fourth, nowhere, nowhere in the New Testament do we see the apostles or other Christians reciting this prayer in a ritualistic or repetitive manner. So that's why it is not to be used as a script, if you will, to verbatim repeat this prayer. And the Lord's Prayer, or more accurately, the disciples' prayer, it is not so much a prayer in itself as much as it is an outline for our own prayers of adoration, thanks, and praise. They've got three slides up there. And I, and I borrow this from, from John MacArthur, who, who said you can use this prayer in in. in he gave three outlines, if you will, and how you could outline the comprehensiveness of this prayer, of this scripture. And he, he says, um, here we go. So, when outlined from the perspective of our relationship to God, we can see that our Father, indicating the usage of our Father, shows the Father-Child relationship. Hallowed be the name, the deity and worship. The kingdom come, sovereignty in the subject. Thy will be done, the master servant. Give us this day our daily bread, the benefactor and the beneficiary. Forgive us our debts, the savior and the sinner. And do not lead us in temptation, the guide and pilgrim. You see the juxtaposition between God and us. And another way that you could outline this, when outlined from the perspective of the attitude and spirit of prayer... Our, the word our, it reflects unselfishness. The word father reflects family devotion. Hallowed be thy name uh, reflects reverence. Thy kingdom come, loyalty. Thy will be done, submission. Give us this day our daily bread, dependence. Forgive us our debts, penitence, repentance. Do not lead us into temptation, humility. Thine is the kingdom, triumph, and the glory, exaltation, forever, hope. It reflects hope in the glory of God. Thirdly, in a similar ways, the prayer could be outlined to show the balance of God's glory and our need, the threefold purpose of prayer, to hallow God's name, bring in his kingdom, and do his will. And thirdly, the approach of present, past, and future. That is, give us this day or daily bread, forgive us of our debts, and future do not lead us into temptation. So I think that is a wonderful uh, breakdown of how that you could outline this. Don't you believe so? Don't you believe so? So, the purpose of prayer is seen more in the overall thrust of these five verses than in any particular word or phrase. So be from beginning to end, the focus is on God, on his adoration, his worthiness, his glory. Look here, verse 2 now. We're going we're gonna to go verse by verse. And, and break this down for ourselves. I have a feeling this mic is about to go out for some reason. If it does, I'll grab another. So he said to them, have your Bibles handy, when you pray. I had you repeat that a couple of times. When. When you pray. It is assumed. It is expected that you will pray. When you pray. He uses that phrase also in Matthew chapter 6. When you pray. Our 
Father. He begins the prayer with our Father. And for this day and time, in the first, in first century Israel, this is groundbreaking. Many of us start our prayers off by Father, Heavenly Father. But for Jesus to start this prayer by Father, it's a scandal of all scandals. It's a scandal of all scandals. Here's a reason why. Some years ago, a German scholar was doing research in New Testament literature and discovered that in the entire history of Judaism, in all existing books of the Old Testament, in all existing books of extra-biblical Jewish writings, that's everything in addition to the biblical text, dating from the beginning of Judaism until the 10th century A.D. in Italy, there is not a single reference of a Jewish person addressing God directly in the first person as Father. There were appropriate forms of address that were used by Jewish people in the Old Testament, and the children were trained to address God in proper phrases of respect, and all these titles were memorized, and the term Father was not among them. But the first Jewish rabbi to speak directly to God and reference him as Father was Jesus of Nazareth. It was Jesus of Nazareth. This was a radical departure from the history of the Jewish people in their relation to Yahweh, their God, the true and living God. And in every recorded prayer we have from the lips of Jesus, save one prayer where he calls God Father. Continuously, whenever he references God the Father or he speaks to him, from his lips come Father, a direct speaking to God in heaven, calling him his Father. And it actually, what was one of the reasons the people wanted to kill Jesus, wanted to take him out? It says in John 5.18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath by healing people on the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. They wanted to stone him for saying, my father, or father. Wanted to stone him for teaching this very thing. And what's even more radical is that Jesus says to his people, when you pray, you say, our father. I want you to know, you have been given the right and the privilege to come into the presence of the majesty of God and address him as Father. Address him as your heavenly Father and you being the son or daughter. We know from Romans 8, we have been adopted into the family of God. We have been granted access to be a part of the family of God. And his fatherhood, to call him Father, it indicates first that he is authority, but also that he's good. It indicates his willingness to lead and his willingness to bless us. How many of you, you loved your children so much that you led and corrected them and you loved them so much that you wanted to bless them with good things? Any normal parent wants to do the same thing for their children. And if you being evil, how much more does your Father in Heaven want to give you good things? To call Him Father has huge implications, massive implications. 
Think about this in Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if you are a child, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we also be glorified together. I approach him as my father with reverence, with humility, but not with torment and fear. I have not been given a spirit of bondage again to fear. He is now my father. He's not my judge. He's not the executioner. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ I've been granted access to to be a part of the family of God. I've been adopted in. I've been grafted into the olive tree. I've, I've been granted access to approach God and call him father. Call him father. And even post ascension, For post-ascension, that is after Jesus rose, New Testament prayer, here's here's the way that we we pray. We approach the the Father in prayer by the power and unction of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus through his blood. By the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, we approach the Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that enables you to pray. And I want you to get this. We must have spirit-led prayer. Prayer, that is not just something of the mind. Yes, you pray with your mind where you actually formulate words, but it must be a matter of the unction and leading of the Holy Spirit in how you pray, what you pray. And and this is all the more important or all the more indication that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is important for your your prayer life. This unction and the ability for the, the Holy Spirit to pray through you. And to give you this burden of the Holy Ghost in your life. And we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, there have been some people who have incorrectly said, this means Daddy God. And this is absolutely incorrect. Not because I think it's irreverent for us to call him Daddy God. But historically and grammatically, it just doesn't uphold. The word Abba is Father in Aramaic. There was only one word, there was only one understanding for Abba in Aramaic. And it was Father. Not some lesser term for your father. It wasn't daddy. So he's, he's in the Aramaic and in the Greek. He's saying, Father, Father. Father, Father. Abba, Father. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 34, when Jesus goes to the garden, he says, Abba, Father. It indicates just the, the, the absolute intimacy that he had with the Father. Our Father in heaven. That's the next phrase. Where is our Father? He's in heaven. He's in heaven. Where is heaven? I have no idea. I have no idea. It's hard to understand. And we know that God is omnipresent. It's not like he's sitting on his throne and he's restrained just to a particular place in heaven. Preach it, Siri. Some young person, go help her. (laughs) It's okay. Pray him. In heaven. 
what this, what this is indicating, it is a reminder that he is high above it all. He's high above it all. He transcends time and space and all other constraints that we as humans are subject to. It further indicates that nothing is outside of the knowledge of God. That we all stand naked before God. Nothing is hidden. Nothing is a secret from God. He sees all things. He hears all things. He knows all things. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. So therefore, what does this mean? What is the implication for our life? We, everything that we do in the way that we think, what we speak, how we act, it should continually be in, with the understanding that we have a watchful father who is observing from heaven, knows all things, sees all things, and that we will give an account for what we've done in our body. He sees all things. He knows all things. And whatever we do right now, whatever you do this very moment, it's as if you're in the very presence of God doing it in front of him. Wow. Think about that. What you do in secret, it's done in his presence. Oh. What you think, it's done in his presence. What you say, it's in his presence. In the same way I'm in your presence right now. And this is not so that you can be condemned because, my God, I'm glad you don't know what goes through my head on a normal day. What I want to say and I don't say it, what I do say and I wish I hadn't. Can anybody agree with that? But thank God for his mercy and his grace and my ability to rise above the sinful nature and flesh and to live a pleasing life as one bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. That I can be a pleasing child and I am pleasing to him as I seek and desire his will for my life. But that is a very sobering and humbling, but also reassuring. He sees what I'm doing. He sees my acts of service. He sees my labor of love. He sees when nobody else sees. He sees what I'm doing in the shadows for him. He takes notice. He has it in his account of all things, and I will be rewarded for that. I'm doing it as unto him, not as unto man. He sees all that. Hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This word hallowed, it means to make holy or sacred or to be set apart or revered. To separate from profane things. It is, it is an indication of God's holiness and the fact that he is absolutely opposite of what is common. He is holy. He is to be revered. He is to be set apart and holy. It does not mean that we make him holy. It means that we acknowledge and declare him to be holy and glorify all his perfections and actions. It doesn't make him any more holy than he is, but it allows us to acknowledge and declare him to be such. Hallowed be your name. Why didn't he say hallowed be yourself, you? Hallowed be the Father. He said hallowed be your name. Anytime you see, in particularly in the Psalms, you see a lot of for your name's sake. I glorify your name. We do this for your name. Your name is beautiful. Anytime you see where the name, where it says the name of God or your name, O God, name here means God himself. It means God himself. But it means the nature of God. So far as man can come to an understanding of who God is. So it means, what it means when I say the name of God, it's indicating his very nature and who he is, what makes God, God. 
So it means, therefore, together with his existence, all his attributes are perfections. All of what makes up God in heaven, his eternity, his immutability, his omnipotence, that is, his, he's all-powerful, his omniscience, that is, he's all-knowing, his omnipresence, that he's everywhere, his wisdom, his faithfulness, his goodness, his trinity and unity, his unity and trinity, his justice, his essential purity and ho- holiness, and above all, His love, which is the very brightness of His glory. So in praying that God or His name be hallowed, we are praying that He might be known for who He truly is. For who He truly is and is the fullness of who this God is that we serve. For all that are capable of knowing Him. And that we may be duly honored and feared, that he may be duly honored and feared and loved by all in heaven above and in earth beneath. And so this means that we must approach our Father with a humble and reverential attitude, the way that we approach God, because he is our Father in heaven, and hallowed be his name. He is unlike anyone. He is separate. He is is all to himself holy. And to be revered, it should instill in us a humility and a reverential attitude. And it further means that we should ardently desire, okay, we should ardently desire to know and proclaim God's nature as he has truly revealed himself. And I will tell you, if you didn't already know, there are many people in pulpits today and and Christians who are not representing the true God of Scripture. And when he says, hallowed be your name, he means the fullness, the entire fullness of who he is. The full counsel of God, if you will, in regards to his very nature. That I, I don't pick a particular attribute or set of attributes that I like about God and then forget the rest. That I don't concentrate just on his holiness or just on his mercy. He's all those things infinitely and perfectly and all at the same time. And, and that is what makes him who he is. So to proclaim his name and to make his name hallowed, it is to proclaim who the God of this word truly is and not watering it down, not making him less than what he is or making him into something he's not because, you know, that's called idolatry. And if you make God of this word to be someone that he has not revealed himself to be, you're worshiping a different God. You know, Mormonism has a lot of the same phrases. They even admit that Jesus was real. But they've created a God for themselves in any other, any other man-made religion. It's man-made God, and it happens in Christianity today. In particular, the prosperity gospel. It's idolatry. They have made God into, into, some, in a, into a person that does not exist in my Bible. It just doesn't. And so that is the truth. That is the truth. So it means that we must proclaim him for who he is and revere such. We hallow God's name with our lips, with our thoughts, with the action of our lives, the way that we raise our families and treat our children, and the way that we live out our calling and vocation in life. We can hallow his name in the exhibition of our lives, in living out our lives. Your kingdom come. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. John Gill says this, this is a form of expression used by the ancient Jews. Before the coming of Christ, doubtless was, as it now stands in their prayers, here's what they would originally say. The kingdom of thy Messiah, 
come. That, that is a normal Jewish prayer. The kingdom of thy Messiah come. But Christ alters this expression, doesn't he? He says, your kingdom come. The Father, your kingdom come. To let them know that the Messiah has come. He is here. And he's in your very midst. And that it was a kingdom of the Father and the power of his grace upon the souls of men they must pray for and expect. That's what John Gill says. And this is further indicated by Mark chapter 1 where of Jesus it says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So in the immediate sense, God's kingdom coming is Jesus taking rule and reign in a, a uh, penitent person's heart. Them coming to understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the savior of the world, he's God's son. That's God's kingdom coming to your life. Your kingdom come. And he said, the kingdom of God is here. And he's talking about, I'm here. I am here. The Messiah, I am here. And not just in the immediate context, but also in the future. And that Jesus is speaking of an everlasting kingdom. He's speaking of a kingdom which, when once and for all, Christ will be exalted above all kingdoms. And it's can be related from Daniel chapter 7. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Do you recall from Sunday, I talked about how that Luke continuously calls Jesus, or Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man. It indicates in one sense um, his humanity, but also in the second sense, his messiahship and the perfectness of his nature and being the perfect human being. And that's understood from this scripture. He is the Son of Man. He is the perfect ruler and just person. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. So he's saying, let the kingdom of God come into your life, into your heart, and then ultimately let the kingdom of God come to rule and reign once and for all. Your will be done. The word will, it simply means desire, God's desires, God's purposes. Let your will be done. Adam Clark says this, the will of God is infinitely good, wise, and holy. To have it fulfilled in and among men is to have infinite goodness, wisdom, and holiness diffused throughout the universe and earth made the counterpart of heaven. And I should note, should note to you, whenever you come to the subject of God's will for your life, it's not, only God, not in, it's not only you submitting to God's will in a passive sense, but also seeking it in an active sense. So, so in one sense, we, we submit to the will of God, that is, if suffering, if trial and tribulation come, I actively endure it. I patiently endure it. And if that be God's will for my life, then I do it. That's submitting to God's will. But also, it is also in an active sense that I pursue God's will for my life. That it's God's will for me to walk in righteousness and holiness and love and goodness and mercy and to pursue spiritual gifts and to pursue God and all that he has for me. So that is his will. So both in a submissive, passive sense and also in a proactive sense, we should seek the will of God for our lives. And listen, you can never truly be satisfied and holy except that God's will is accomplished in your life, right? And, and you can speak from experience, can't you? 
You can speak from experience that is before you were in Christ, how miserable and terrible your life was, that you had no hope in this world. And then when you came to, to faith in Jesus Christ, oh, his way, his will, his desire, his pleasures are much better than what mine were and what the devil had in store for me. But even in, in, in the realm and kingdom of Christ, we can settle for less than what he has for us sometimes. And sometimes we're stubborn children, and he chastens whom he loves. And he's patient with us, and he, he roots things out of us that, that are displeasing to him and because he wants us to be conformed to his son. And, and when you come out of that, when you're chastened by the Lord, it hurt for a little while. It, the phrase goes, it hurts me more than it hurts you. Jonathan always got out of a spanking. He always got out of a spanking. He'd, be, he'd have his, I've told the story before, he, he'd be bent over and the attorney in him would come out and he'd start asking my, oh, how hard are you going to hit? Where are you going to hit me? What are you using? How thick is that belt? What is the velocity of that, that swing going to be? He would ask so many questions and be like, whoa, 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 whoa. That my parents, by the time he was doing that, they were laughing and they could barely even spank him because they, they just... He had talked him out of it. But God is faithful to correct us. <laughs> we can't squirm out of it. But he does it for our good and our benefit because it's his will that is most beneficial to you. So your will be done, God, for my life in this world. And we know at the very end of Jesus' life, his earthly ministry, he went to the garden. What did he say? Three times he prayed this prayer. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Except that Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, he would have not have gone to the cross. But he submitted to the will and he suffered for us. And we're called to do the same. That is, submit to his will and not uphold our own. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These, these desires to do the will of God as it is done in heaven, meaning not so much by the inanimate creatures. This is what John Gill says. It, it's meaning not so much by the inanimate creatures, the sun and moon and stars. Okay, not, not like just things on earth are doing the will of God on earth. Okay, all the created things. But, but what he's saying is, but glorified saints and holy angels who do it voluntarily and cheerfully speedily and without delay, constantly and without any interruption, and perfectly and completely. Those who have a free will, who can choose for God's will to be accomplished, he would like to see on earth as it is in heaven, heaven, those of us voluntarily submitting to his will. Give us day by day our daily bread. That's verse 3. And in Matthew 6, which we had read, he had started the prayer by saying, don't be like the heathen, the repetitive prayer, for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So why should I ask? If he already knows, why should I ask? Do I have to ask Lily and Oliver and Henry if they want to eat in order for me to feed them? No, I know children eat and they need to be fed. So, so why should I ask God to be fed? He knows I need whatever. We don't know why. Because when you daily, day by day, go to the Father, it's an acknowledgement that He is your source, that He is your supply, 
in that you are not self-reliant. He cares about your temporal needs, not just your spiritual. He cares about your temporal needs. So I'm glad this is put in here because he cares that you're clothed. He cares that you have a roof over your head. He cares that you have food in your stomach. He cares about your temporal needs. In the same way, God, the same God who provides for the sparrow will surely look after his own children. And in the same way that the Old, Old Testament Israel daily had to go out every morning and grab the manna from heaven, and they couldn't take any for the next day. You know why? Because if they would have taken all they could in one fell swoop, they would have never had to go out for another several months. And then they would have never been reminded that the Lord supplied this to you. But every time you have to wake up and go and, and, and grab what the Lord has given to you, it's a reminder that we are not self-reliant. We're not self-dependent. We're not the source of the things given to us. So we have to go out, get the day's need, and the next day get the day's need and the next day as a reminder that we are dependent upon the Lord. So daily, he says, give us day by day our daily bread. So every day, refer to the Lord or view the Lord as your sole source and supply for all things. This should develop a dependence in us and then also a thankfulness and gratefulness. Amen? And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. He's speaking to Christians. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. In Matthew 6, he actually refers to sin as debt. And in this, this, this context, it's synonymous, sin and debt, because our sin was a debt on our ledger, wasn't it? We owed a debt we could never pay. And the payment would have to be death on our part. That's the, the, the wages that sin pays. And so none of us are without fault or sin until we reach heaven. This is not making admittance for sin or excuse for sin in your life right now, but it is the acknowledgement that you have not yet been glorified once and for all and that you deal with this carnal nature, but you have been, here's the good news, you have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, and the stony heart that you had has been exchanged for a heart of flesh, and the Spirit of God has been placed within you, and now you can love the things you used to hate, hate the things you used to love, and you can walk in the fullness that God has for you, because his power enables you to do so. You shall no longer be overcome or dominated by sin because you are not under law but under grace. Paul spoke in Romans chapter 6. And so it doesn't mean that we don't sin, but it means that we continuously acknowledge our shortcomings. And it doesn't mean that we willfully sin and that we continuously make excuse for sin, but it means that we understand we are still not perfected yet, but we're being perfected. And it's an admittance, an admittance, God, I need your grace every single waking moment, every single sleeping moment. I need your grace. I need your grace. I haven't arrived yet. I haven't made it. I haven't arrived yet. But you're perfecting me all the more. And it's interesting that he, he refers to sin as debts. And nothing is more frequent in the Jewish writings than to call sins debts. And sin is described as a debt here, yet there's nothing we can do to pay it off, is there? Is there anything you can do to pay off your sin, the debt of your sin? There's nothing you can do. None of us can. 
But for the Christian, it has been paid for once and for all. Yet we're instructed to continually confess and ask for forgiveness of sin, which God so graciously grants on the basis of justification by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. So, so let me, let me, let me kind of cap that with 1 John 1 and 5. This is written to Christians. This is not an unbeliever. This is written to a Christian. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say it's kind of like he is hallowed, he's different, he's holy, he's righteous, he is light, there's no darkness in God. If we say that we have fellowship with him, if I'm justified by faith, if I'm in Christ, I put my trust and faith in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That is, our lives are still are still. Uh, uh, controlled by sin and the flesh. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from sin. It's a continuous cleansing. It's not, it's not, it's not like every day you're re-justified, but it's a continual cleansing by his blood that is sanctification, making me more and more and more conformed to his son. And when, Jesus, when God shows you have some pride in there, that pride is sin. You got some bitterness in there. Does it mean I'm not a Christian? No. It just means, God, I need your grace. I need to be perfected. I need to be sanctified. And he points it out, and that's sin. But as I continually walk hand in hand with him in the light, and I don't scurry away into the darkness to do my sin over here, but I'm with him hand in hand, have a fellowship with him. I'm not condemned. I'm a new creation in Christ. There is continual cleansing and sanctification of the child of God. Amen? That is the right you have. And this is what he's speaking of. So daily, Lord, forgive me of what I did today. And I can't even remember. There's probably things I did that were sin. And, and, and notice... What I'm saying, again, it's not me justifying sin. It's actually me elevating the holiness of God in our inadequacy. It's me acknowledging you may have sin in your life and you don't even realize it yet. It doesn't mean you're rebellious. It just means that as you get closer to him, he's going to put his finger on things more and more and more. And he's gracious and he's merciful and he's a good father. And he'll, he'll take it if you give it to him, give it to him, give it to him. But as you walk in the light as he is in the light and you have fellowship with him, he cleanses us. He cleanses us. He cleanses us. This is not re-justification every day. It is continuously being conformed to the, to the person of Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, verse 2, or chapter 2, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. God's will is that you don't sin. So we don't say, oh, you got to sin every day. No, he's saying, I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to sin. And if anyone does sin, okay, the word of God is saying, it's making not allowance for sin, but it's, it is exposing the reality of our present state while we're not yet glorified in heaven. And if you do sin, Oh, I'm thankful for this. I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Am I righteous? No. I have an advocate with the one who is righteous, Jesus. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. So, and then forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Forgive our sins 
and allow us to forgive everyone who is indebted to us. You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant who was, who was forgiven by his master a very minuscule amount, let's say three cents, or I'm sorry, a huge amount, it's backwards. He, he, he owed his master, let's say, $3 million. He, he asked for mercy and compassion. The master had mercy and compassion upon him. He let him go, and then he goes to a fellow servant, and he puts him up against the wall, and he throws him into jail because he owed him three cents. We've been forgiven our sins. We've been granted adoption to the family of God, and yet if we don't forgive, we're not walking in the same likeness of our Father. And that's what he's teaching. Help us to forgive others that we have been forgiven. Coming to the end right here. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And we know from James chapter 1, verse 13, that God does not tempt anyone. When, when, when you are tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. Don't say that, James tells us. But God will allow us to be subjected to trials that may expose us to Satan's assaults. Such as Jesus in the desert, in the very beginning of his ministry, and Jesus in the garden at the very end of his ministry. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and prayed. And then at the end of those 40 days, who showed up? Satan. And he tempted him, but he responded with the word of God. And even in the garden... What did Jesus tell Peter, James, and John, who he asked to come away from him with the, from the other disciples, come and pray with me? And what was, it, what, was, what was the whole reason he wanted them to pray with him? And what was the whole reason he was praying? It's because pray that you may not enter temptation. What happened, though? When the high priest guard showed up, everybody ran. Peter denied Jesus three times. They all failed. In the time of temptation, they gave in, didn't they? Could it be because they weren't praying <laughs> as Jesus was? I don't know. But they all fell asleep. They all fell asleep. But lead us not into temptation. In the previous segment, we says, forgive us of our sins. In this, he's saying, lead us not into temptation. The petition expresses the believer's desire to avoid dangers of sin altogether. So you don't play with sin. You look out for sin. You, you see that the devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You're not ignorant of, the, of Satan's devices and the way that he may tempt you. Never pray to be delivered from temptation totally. Why? Because you never will be. Temptations may change for you or temptations are different from person to person but you will never be delivered of temptation totally in this life. And, 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 and understand what I'm saying. I'm saying don't, it's, it's not don't pray for not to be tempted, but just don't say, God, I never want to be tempted again. That's not going to come true. It just isn't because you're still living here. But you can pray, God, if I am tempted, I know I will be tempted. Please help me. Help me to stand upon your word. Help me to be faithful and true. Lead, my, lead me not into sin. Don't let me be delivered into the hand of the evil one. Don't let Satan have his way in my life. That's the desire in this petition. Don't lead me into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. God knows that we are able, to, God knows what we are able to bear and will not allow us to be subjected to, to temptation beyond what we are able to bear. 
As 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, meaning every single person is experiencing some sort of temptation, every single one of us. The fact that you're being tempted by whatever it is, and I don't care how grotesque the temptation is, do not be condemned by your temptation. The temptation is not sin. And how do I know that? The Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, and yet he did not sin. So temptation is not sin. Some people, they get so discouraged. They thought, I was absolutely delivered from this thing, and now I'm tempted to do it. Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged to run to the strength and power of God who's faithful to deliver you from that temptation so that you don't have to give in and actually sin. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. It doesn't always have to be how it's always been. God is able. He's faithful. He's more powerful than your flesh and the sin that you face. So submit yourself to God and say, Lord, do not lead me into temptation. And whatever, whatever I find myself in, help me, Lord, not to sin. I want to please you. Joseph was tempted. He was tempted to commit adultery, tempted to lie with his master's wife. And what did, what did Joseph say? How can I sin against God? He was tempted, but he ran away. God will always give you an avenue of escape and help you to bear it. Seth and Abby, come, please. I want us to pray here for a little while. Thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for bearing with me. Now, in Luke chapter 11, it does not end with this final phrase, but in Matthew chapter, 16, chapter 6, verse 13, the latter part of that verse, it does end with what is commonly called the doxology. And it's a conclusion to this prayer. And it says, For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? What a wonderful way to end that prayer. So in this doxology, it's a, it's a comprehensive acknowledgement of the attributes and work of God. To say, yours is the kingdom. It means the sovereign right over all things that are and were created. To say that his is the power, the executive power whereby God governs all things in his everlasting kingdom. To say that his is the glory, it is the praise due from every creature for his power and mightiness of his kingdom. Forever. Forever means forever. From everlasting to everlasting without end. And amen. So be it. Let it be true. Let it be true in my life. And so when we approach prayer, aren't there beautiful things in this that we can draw from and what it implies and indicates for our own lives? What it, what it says of our relationship to God. We as children, He as Father. What it says of His nature what it says of his goodness, what it says of his holiness, what it says of his ability to provide for you, and he's trustworthy, and he's faithful. What it says of his ability to cleanse you from sin and to keep you from temptation leading unto sin. 
And ultimately, we have a hope that we will rule and reign with Jesus, our Savior, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's the God that we serve. And so when you approach prayer, again, this is not some pragmatic form to be repeated, but there's so many things to be drawn from this. Let it be a model of prayer. Let it be a model of prayer. The way that we view God, the the way that we view ourselves in the presence of God, the way that we live our lives, everything, the way that we pray and enter into his presence. Let that be the testimony of us here today. Would you stand with me?